Uh, let me add my welcome to what you've already heard from Paige and Luke and the others. I'm Rob. Good to be with you all. Uh, if you're new to fellowship, we have two primary teaching pastors, myself and Lloyd Shadrach. We have two campuses here and at Franklin. And so Lloyd and I alternate. We're in the same series together. So the message that you hear this morning will be taught at Franklin next week and Lloyd will be here next week and we alternate back and forth. And the beauty of that is we get to teach as a team. You get to hear multiple perspectives on the text. It gives us a little more time to dig deeper on each message because we get to teach it twice. First here at Brentwood and then at Franklin. So I love the way we do it here, but if you're new, it's not always clear how that works. And I wanted just to start off by sharing that. I'd love to meet you if I never have. Uh, hang around after the service, just come down front, say hello. Or if it's been a while since we talked, I'd love to say hello this morning. Curious if we had anybody in the room that was stranded or caught up in the weather, the Southwest flights or any other airline, raise your hand if you were stranded or disrupted in significant ways. Well, I see like someone's hand like way up in the sky. That tells me something right there. Several others as well. Yeah, there were quite a few in the first service as well. Uh, so sorry that happened. I mean, uh, hopefully God worked through the unexpected. As we were talking about in our Advent series is sometimes we have to make room for the unexpected. Um, I had to do some of that as well. Um, I, I wasn't scheduled to fly anywhere for our Christmas break, but we took a longer than normal trip to the East Coast. So um, we have family in Georgia. My wife and I met at uh, Georgia, and then we have family in South Carolina as well. And so every Christmas we usually go spend time with um, all the family, which is wonderful. We typically leave after Christmas Day. We stay here through Christmas Eve, spend Christmas Day with our family just in our own home, and then we leave on the 26th. But this year, we thought, let's go a little early. The girls had off school the whole week before Christmas, so we left on the 21st. Um, one of our executive pastors, Eric Hoffman, taught the Christmas Eve service at Franklin Campus, which enabled me to go, and we got to spend Christmas Day with my parents, which was wonderful, and it was a long time. And they're watching online. Hi, Mom and Dad. But our trip took an unexpected turn when one week into the trip, the transmission on our minivan went out. We were in Charleston, South Carolina, and it was one of those situations, you know, our van's not super old, but it's kind of old. It's like, do you, what do you do? Like, do you rep repair it? The price tag was crazy. It's, you know, anyone who's done transmission, you know, it's really expensive. We did decide to repair it. So then it was a chase if we could get done in time for us to get back before the girls started school this past Wednesday. So the repair shop said, shouldn't be a problem. Let's get working on it. They got working on it. And then we've quickly discovered it's not going to happen before the girls have to go home. So then it was, do we rent a car and all go home? Does one of us stay back? So we decided I was going to stay back, wait for the van to be repaired. We, we rented an, another vehicle and my wife and three daughters went home on Monday. I stayed around and I said, here's the thing, repair shop. It's got to be done by Friday because I'm 10 hours from home. I'm a pastor and I have to preach on Sunday morning. And so they said, no problem, Mr. Sweet. We'll get it done for you. Monday came and went. Tuesday came and went. Wednesday, I checked in with them. We're on schedule. Everything's good. Thursday, called them again. Everything's good. Friday afternoon. I'm sorry, Mr. Sweet. It's not going to be finished in time, but we'll have it done for you mid-afternoon tomorrow, Saturday. <laughs> I said, that doesn't work for me. So I, I decided at that point, after having waited around all week without my family, to fly home. I booked a flight on Southwest Airlines. <laughs> now, 
I kind of wish I could tell you that the flight was canceled, but it wasn't. I mean, that would have made a better story, but everything went great. In fact, there's hardly anybody flying Southwest Airlines right now. <laughs> so I had a whole row to myself. I got in late on Friday. I had yesterday to kind of do the transition, but, but it's been a weird break for me. Now, the weirdest thing of all was when I packed my bag at the beginning of the trip on December 20th, I had my shoes in a separate bag. I left the bag at home. So all I had for 16 days were my Crocs. <laughs> we had a couple like nice dinners we went to. My, my father-in-law was celebrating his retirement dinner. We went out to this nice restaurant. There's Rob and his Crocs. I almost put them on this morning just out of habit. <laughs> but I hope that your travels went well if you were traveling and it is a new year and there's something about a new year that kind of gives us a breath. And so let's take a breath this morning as we dive back into the Gospel of John. Open up your Bibles and we're gonna start back at the beginning of the Gospel of John. John chapter one, verse one. This morning, I'm gonna do something a little bit different. I'm gonna do a recap of where we've been and we've so far covered about a third of the book uh, of, of John. Only five chapters we've covered so far. There are 21 chapters in John's gospel. But if you just count the, the verses and the words, we're about a third of the way through. And I want to recap where we've been. I also want to do something else this morning. I want to remind us what our mission is as a church and connect it to John's gospel. Because it's the reason why we've chosen to study John for a, a whole year. And, and it'll, it'll still be about a year before we finish up this gospel. Uh, we'll put our mission statement on the screen. And the very first week, which I think was like August 7th, we were here together and we said, uh, Lloyd and I were here together. And we, and we said, we're here together because we want to let you know we're updating the language of our mission because we feel like God's made it really clear to us that he wants us to focus on something. And that's following Jesus with everything we are and helping other people follow Jesus with everything they are. So here's how we've articulated that becoming a community of people who follow Jesus with our whole heart, that means our thoughts, emotions, desires, choices, it's all of us, and help others do the same. That's our mission. And so why are we in the Gospel of John at this time, right now in the history of our church, as we're approaching a 25 years, and this is our 25th anniversary, 2023, it's our 25th anniversary as a church. We're in the Gospel of John because we wanna follow Jesus. We're in the Gospel of John because we want to see how Jesus made disciples because we're called to make disciples. We're in the Gospel of John because what better way to learn what it means to follow Jesus with our whole heart than to look at the life of Jesus. So that's what we've been doing together. And I want to recap where we've been. Before I do, though, I, I want to just remind us there's three ways we read the text. And not just John's, John's Gospel, all of Scripture. I want to encourage you to re read it through three lenses. The first one is this. Read for information. That's the obvious one. And it's important. We're here to be learners. The easiest way to understand what a disciple is, a good synonym for disciple in, in the context of the New Testament, was learner. We're here to learn from Jesus. And so we want to do that. We want to do that really, really well. So that's the first thing. Read for information. Number two, read for transformation. Every person who encountered Jesus Christ was somehow changed by him was not left the same from their encounter with Jesus. And that's what God desires for us as well. As we encounter Jesus, the word made flesh in the words of the book, the Bible. And then lens number three, read to find yourself and your purpose. 
read to find yourself and your purpose. And I was thinking about this one. I thought, we don't just mean like you're watching a movie and, and you see a character that reminds you of yourself. It's like, I found myself in that movie. It was in this character. I mean, find yourself, <laughs> your identity, who God says you are. And then find your purpose. All this is in this book. Who you are and why you are. Find yourself and find your purpose. You know, uh, surely there's more to life than, than spinning around the sun, collecting things, and streaming entertainment. Surely there's more to life. Why are we here? What's our purpose? Here, here's what John's gospel will ask you. Do you want to come alive and discover the reason that you're alive? That's the invitation of Jesus. Come alive, awake, be born again, be made new. Find who you are, who you were made to be, and discover your purpose. That's all right here, and we're gonna be talking about this morning as we recap these five chapters. So here's how I'm gonna do this. It's gonna take a little bit of time to walk through. We got five chapters to walk through. I'm gonna hit the highlights. We're gonna read a few verses and dig down on them a little bit, but this is gonna be a big overview. And again, we're focusing this morning on what does it mean for us to live out this mission that Jesus has given us and the gospel of John's relevance to that. So let's start in chapter one, verse one. I'm gonna read the first five verses of John's gospel. This is a prologue, and the themes here play out throughout the rest of the chapters. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What a remarkable way to begin. You know, this, this guy, John, who was a disciple of Jesus, he was a really close friend of Jesus during Jesus's three years of ministry. And he's now older. He's reflecting back on that. He's reflecting back on his life and, and what flows out of him as he sits down to, to, to talk about the life of Jesus was Jesus is the word. He's God. God's the word. And, the, and jump down to, to verse 14. Let's look at this together. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's my favorite verse in John's gospel, 114. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what John is communicating here is this divine principle, this, this being who, who spoke creation into existence, this God of the universe, put on a body. You know, had oxygen flowing through his lungs, had blood flowing through his veins. He became one of us while not giving up his deity, fully God, fully man, and he dwelled with us. He came to be with us, so we're not alone, and that's what we've been talking about Christmas time. One more verse on, in this early part of the prologue that I want to hit, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And what I wrote in my margin next to that line right there is, this is us. This is the first place in John's gospel where you can find yourself. 
If you believe in Christ, like you believe he's the son of God, you believe the story about him is true, you've received that news in your life with open hands, so to speak, you are a child of God. And he goes on to say, not born of blood. See, he's gonna have this conversation with Nicodemus in chapter three. Nicodemus thinks it's his Jewish blood that makes him a child of God. Jesus is gonna say, no, you have to be born of spirit. If you this morning, I'm talking to you and you guys watching online, if you this morning believe in Jesus, you're a child of God. What a good reminder as you start a new year. Now, chapter one continues. It focuses on John the Baptist. So verse 19 through 28, focus on John, actually continuing in through the rest of the chapter as well. John the Baptist was the first witness of Jesus. I don't mean the first person to see Jesus. I mean the first person to tell others about Jesus. He, he, he was a witness to who Jesus was. And so what John did was he, he pointed, you know, sort of metaphorically, maybe literally, we don't know. And he would say this phrase, behold, behold just means look. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see that down in chapter one, verse 29. And then you see it again later on as well in chapter one, verse 36. And so John the Baptist points to Jesus. Two of John the Baptist's disciples start following Jesus. And, and look down at, at verse 37 and 38. The two disciples heard him, John, say this. They followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following. These are Jesus' very first disciples. He turns around to his first disciples and says, what are you seeking? When we taught this part of the text, we paused and said, if you want this story to become your story, you have to allow Jesus to ask you that question. What are you seeking? What do you really want in life? What are you hoping for? What are you dreaming for? What does Jesus have to do with it? So Jesus asked these men this penetrating question. They don't know how to answer it yet, so they simply say, well, where are you staying? It's like, I don't really know what I'm looking for yet, Jesus, but I think you might have some answers for me. That's some of you in the room. Like, I don't really know what I want, but I think Jesus might be a way to get it. And so Jesus responds to their question, where are you staying? And look, look at Jesus's words in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. Pair that sentence with Jesus's question. What are you seeking? Whatever it is, come and you will see. The chapter continues with these first disciples telling others about Jesus. So Andrew is one of the first two. He tells his brother, Peter. That's how we get Simon Peter, or, you know, Peter that we all know about. Then Jesus calls another guy, Philip. Philip goes to his friend, Nathaniel tells him about Jesus. And I love the way uh, he says it. Look at the end of verse 46. Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. Where did Philip, or where, yeah, where did Philip get that language from? Straight from Jesus. And then they have this in interesting interaction where Jesus meets Nathaniel and he's like, you know, before you ever, you know, saw me, I saw you under the fig tree, this very interesting thing. And, you know, Nathaniel's mind is blown. And, and I, I love what Jesus says. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You might recall, that's a reference to Jacob's ladder. 
the Old Testament story where Jacob saw a vision of, of heaven opened up and angels walking up and down this stairway. The significance of the stairway or the ladder is it connects heaven and earth. It was like the portal, the, the, the way to get to heaven, right? Jesus is now saying, I am the way to get to heaven. I am the stairway to heaven. I am the ladder, the, the portal between, you know, human space and God space. Fully man, fully God. This is who Jesus is. What's actually going on? The word has become flesh. The Old Testament passage about Jacob and his ladder has become embodied in the person of Jesus. And you're going to see this happening all throughout John's gospel, the word becoming flesh. So that's chapter one, chapter two, the first sign of Jesus, the miracle at the wedding at Cana. He turns water into wine. You'll remember that story. The significance of this, John says it was the first sign. The word sign is important in John's gospel. It doesn't just mean miracle, although it is a miracle, but there are seven signs in the gospel of John and the uniqueness about these signs are they point to Jesus' identity as God's only son. There are other miracles done in the Bible by other people, by prophets. Even the disciples are gonna to get to do miracles, but only Jesus does these signs. They're designed to uniquely identify him as God's own son. So the first one was him turning water into wine. Now what happens immediately after that in the way that John has arranged the text Starting in verse 13, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he overturns the money changers in the temple. Now think about the significance of that. He's just done a sign to say, I'm unique. I'm the very son of God. So then John, the next passage says, and guess what? If he is God's son, that means he's right at home in God's house. So Jesus walks into the, the holy temple like he owns the place because he does. But this obviously creates controversy. So the religious leaders start having a problem with Jesus. And that's the end of chapter two. Now we get to chapter three. Uh, maybe one of the most loved and known passages in the whole Bible. You know, this is where we find John three sixteen, And of course, the context is this man, Nicodemus, who was this learned, very wise leader of Israel, and he comes to Jesus at night, probably because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. But he says something really interesting. Just, just glance down real quick at, at, at verse two. He says, rabbi, which just means teacher, which by the way, Nicodemus was more than a teacher. Like he was a leader. He was a teacher of teachers. So he's kind of looking down at Jesus a little bit as just a teacher. He says, teacher, we, we, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs unless God's with you. So he's saying, I don't know what's up with you. <laughs> But I know there's something special because we, we heard the sign. We saw the sign, right? And then look at Jesus' answer, verse three. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is where Jesus is turning upside down their assumptions of who's in and who's out. So Nicodemus continues to ask questions. Jesus leans in. I want to show you verse 14 before we get to verse 16. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus is saying, so the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the second Old Testament reference that Jesus is saying that Old Testament biblical passage 
is now being made flesh. The word becoming flesh. Jesus is saying, I am what is going to be lifted up. I am salvation for the people. You know, you remember they, they, they were snake bitten and they were dying and, and Moses held up the snake on a pole and if they just looked at it in belief, they were healed. And Jesus is saying, that points to me. So then we get to the, the well-known verse 16, God, loved, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's keep going. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. If you were here on the morning that we taught John 3.16, you'll remember we had a big white sign with, with just the reference, John 3.16 in big bold letters. And we invited anyone who believes, and we talked about what belief really means. Anyone who believes, come up and sign your name. And that sign's out, out in the arcade right now. And, Maybe you weren't with us that day or maybe you're new to fellowship and I just want to invite you, if you believe in Jesus, if you understand he's God's son, he's the unique, fully God, fully man, he died for my sins, I believe that and it's for me and you put your trust, that's what belief means. You don't just intellectually believe but you put your trust in him as well. If that describes you this morning, go sign that sign, put your name on it. You're a part of this fellowship of believers well, there's some Sharpies out there. You can do that on your way out if you want to do that. I would encourage you to. The next part of chapter three goes back to John the Baptist. And the significance of this is this is the moment that John says, I'm gonna go back behind the curtain so that Jesus can be center stage. And that seems strange to us because we think of Jesus as much more famous than John the Baptist. Of course, he turns out to be. But at this time, John the Baptist was the one that's more well-known. Jesus' ministry is just starting. So look what John says in verse 29 of chapter three. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And on that Sunday, we talked about how, what a good example John the Baptist is for us. That, that that would be the cry of our lives as well. Like, I'll be honest, everything in me wants to increase, right? Whether it's, you know, your opinions of me or the way that I can provide for my family or retirement income or, or, or toys. I mean, you know, collecting stuff. Everything in me wants to increase. John's saying it's actually joyful to decrease as Jesus increases. What a, what a beautiful aspiration for us. That ends chapter three. Chapter four, we get this prolonged and beautiful story of Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman at the well and the significance of his gospel going to non-Jewish people. And I love the way Jesus is so courageous with her, but so tender at the same time. And I think we can find ourselves in that as well, is how Jesus engages with us strong, courageous with us, and tender and gentle with us at the same time. So this woman believes, and, and, and the moment of belief is captured in verse 25. Look at it with me, John 4, 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. It's, it's actually verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is another time where the word is being made flesh. Because what this woman knew was Old Testament prophecy, words 
about the Messiah. He's going to be this. He's going to be that. He's going to be salvation. Jesus now says, guess what? I am the one. <laughs> You're looking at the flesh of the words. The word of God embodied in Jesus Christ. I who speak to you am he. I love what happens next. The woman goes back. She tells all her friends in this town. They all come out. Meanwhile, the disciples find Jesus. They're like, you didn't get anything to eat. Aren't you hungry? Look at verse uh, 24, 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then what he does is he invites the disciples to eat real food, which is doing the will of the father. That's real food. That's real drink. And so what happens is many Samaritans come to believe Jesus. Look at verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. I want you to see the mission spreading from person to person. Started with one man, John the Baptist, who was the first witness then a couple of his disciples and then they told their friends and then now a whole town of Samaritans have encountered Jesus and they're believing in the word is on the move. Chapter four finishes with a wonderful healing. It's the second sign. Jesus heals an official's son. Verse 46 and following. The significance of this sign is that Jesus is not even in geographic proximity. He doesn't even have to lay his eyes on this young man to heal him. He doesn't even have to touch him. He just speaks. Who can do that? God alone. You know, who can speak words that rearrange cells and molecules in someone's body? God alone. The same one who spoke creation into existence is now speaking again and, and reordering things to shalom, to wholeness, peace in this young man's body. That's the second sign that Jesus does. And then we get to chapter five and this is where we landed. We got about halfway through chapter five. It begins with this wonderful healing at the, the, the pool. Uh, it was on the Sabbath, which is gonna be significant. But remember, there's this crippled man who never even heard of Jesus, much less seeking Jesus. Jesus finds him. And in verse six of chapter five, Jesus asks him a question that will change his life. Do you want to be healed? And, you know, when we were teaching through this part of the text, we reminded you, always pay attention to the questions of Jesus. In chapter one, it's, what are you seeking? In chapter five, do you want to be healed? Are you able to find yourself in this story? Are you, are, you able, are you able to hear Jesus through his living word asking you these questions? Jesus commands the man, get up, take up your mat and walk. And, and that was significant that he commanded the guy to take up his mat because it was Sabbath. And according to the rules that the, the, the legal scholars had kind of added to the Sabbath regulations, you couldn't carry anything on the Sabbath. You certainly couldn't carry your mat because that's like moving and you weren't allowed to work and moving's work. So, of course, this man gets in trouble with the religious leaders. They're all upset. They can't even see the healing. They just see the law breaking. They ask him, who told you to break the law, to take up your bed and walk? 
He says, the man that healed me. <laughs> Go talk to the miracle worker, is what essentially this guy says. And eventually they discover it was Jesus and, and now they're really upset with him because I want you to see why and this really matters. Look at verse 18 of chapter five. This was why the Jews were seeking to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see the connection? Jesus is doing signs that's communicating, I'm the unique son of God. He overturns the tables in the temple to indicate this is my house, my father's house, and I'm his son, my house too. And now he's, he's essentially rewriting what they see is the law of Moses about the Sabbath. In their minds, Jesus is rewriting this and Jesus is essentially saying, well, you know, you got the law wrong in the beginning, but even if I was rewriting it, I can rewrite it because I am the word made flesh. Now, this is very important that we are forced to wrestle with the same thing that the Jews were forced to wrestle with. And that is this. Jesus is more than just a teacher. Jesus is God. And, and you can imagine from a Jewish perspective how conflicted they must have felt. They see the signs, they want to believe, but at the same time, what do they say every morning? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, is one God. And now this rabbi, former carpenter from Nazareth, is claiming to be on par with that. Surely he cannot be. Do you see the conflict in their own hearts? Why, why is it important that you wrestle with this too? Because if you don't recognize Jesus as God, if he's only an inspirational teacher to you, you'll never rearrange your life around him. You'll never follow him with your whole heart. So we've got to wrestle with this. And this is exactly what Jesus is forcing. He's, he's forcing this internal wrestling. And, and you know how the story is going to go. Some will receive him and some won't. Now, chapter five finishes with a, a, a reminder of Jesus' authority as the unique son of God in verses 19 through 29. And in the middle of that, we find ourselves yet again. Listen to verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Uh, what's, what's today's day? It's somewhere early January. I've lost track with all my travel. Eighth, okay. We're like one week into the new year. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you have already fallen off the wagon? I, my, my hand's up. And you might think, oh, he's talking about the exercise routine or the diet. That's, that's one way. I, I'm talking about this. Every year, don't we sort of say, this is the year I'm really going to follow Jesus. This is the year that I'm going to be good and right and get things in order in my life. And, and how many of us have already fallen off? My hand's up, guys. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. Here's where I want you to find yourself in this. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Of course, Jesus does not want you to sin. Why does he not want you to sin? Because sin robs you of life. 
Jesus will say that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so you may have life. And so sin just robs us of the life that Jesus desires for us. But you're not under judgment if you put your trust in Christ. Why are you not under judgment? Because he bore judgment for you. So you need to start your year understanding you're not under judgment. Because if you start this cycle in your year, it's like, I've already blown it. Here I go again. You're going to shrivel up spiritually. You need to find yourself in this text. Now, we ended verse, with verse 29. And we'll be picking it back up in verse 30. And, and we'll be in this book for quite a long time. Let, let, me, let me do a couple of things with the time I have left. Um, I first want to tell you what I've been dreaming about for our church. Because it's related to this book. I've been dreaming that this story would become our story. That we would find ourselves in this text. It's easy to read the Bible like, okay, that stuff all happened over there. God was on the move. God was on the work, you know, doing a lot of work. And I can learn from it. But that kind of stuff's not happening today. That's not how God would desire for you to think about your life and, and, and where we are in human history. Let, let me propose this analogy. This is not perfect, but, it, but maybe it gets close. New Testament Act, or sorry, Old Testament Act 1 of the drama of God's work in the universe. New Testament Act 2. I don't know exactly when Act 3 started or ended or Act 4, or I don't know exactly where we are, but it kind of feels like we're in Act 5. And we are invited into the story. Where are my lines? What's my script? Here you go. Who am I supposed to follow? How do I act? Guess who? Do you see, you see where we find this? You see how this comes together? I've been dreaming for our church that the story would become our story. Now, I want to share it with you what I see when I, when I look at our church. And, and I love our church. Yeah, I'm smiling talking about it because this is such a great church. And that has nothing to do with me. This church celebrates 25 years. And I think it's March, somewhere in March, that the first public worship service happened for Fellowship Bible Church 25 years ago this year. Here's what I see when I see Fellowship Bible Church. Two things. I see a group of people who love God's word and are eager to learn. I think that may mark this church as much as anything else. A group of, you guys love God's word. That's one of the reasons that I'm here. That's one of the reasons I love the way we teach. It's one of the reasons I'm, I'm all in here at Fellowship. Group of people who love God's word and are eager to learn. There's a second thing I see when I look at, and this is one I haven't talked about before, at least not explicitly. I see an incredible collection of talented able, resourced people with a lot of influence just waiting to be unleashed. <laughs> Do you understand what I mean when I say this? I, you guys are amazing to me. And, and I'm meeting people all the time and I get to know you and I'm just like, man, I'm so glad God brought you to this church. And then someone else, man, I can't believe God brought you to this church. And oftentimes I hear this just like, just put me to work. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well... 
Let's figure that out because we don't have any staff positions. And then I realized it's not the staff that does the work of the church. It's got to be the body. So, so here's the statement that I wrote down. And I don't know how much explaining it'll need, but it's been blowing my mind. Imagine if the word became flesh in our community. Here's what I mean by that. Group of people who love God's word. Group of incredible, talented, able, well-resourced people with influence. Put those two together. Imagine if the word became flesh in our community. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to think about our church differently maybe than you ever have before. God put our church in this place, in this time, so that his word would dwell in our community. And I'm not talking about the preaching that Lloyd and Rob do or the teaching in our adult ministries and our learning center. That's all good. That's all important. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who each week are scattered out of these doors into the community. Imagine if the word became flesh in our community. A word-centered church must be a church on the move because the word became flesh. Why did the word become flesh? So people could see Jesus, so people could hear his voice and hear his word, so he could be walking around. Guys, we're now the body. We're now the only Jesus they're going to see. We're it. Imagine if the word became flesh in our community. This is at the heart of our mission statement. Now, I want to I show you a video um, that, that kind of captures these ideas. Um, it was back in the fall when we introduced this tweak on our mission statement and and Aaron Blanton, who's our communications director, had a creative idea for, for how we might take the words of our mission and, and, and put some images to them. Because I don't know about you, words are helpful, but I really want to see. So this video, all it is, it, it's me and Lloyd talking about our mission, but the main thing are the images on the screen, and it's designed to stir something in us. It's designed to help us see. And imagine. And let's take a look at this and then we'll talk about it for a few minutes. Purpose. The reason why we do what we do. It can drive us to the brink of exhaustion, even madness. Purpose pushes climbers up the summit, keeps teachers in classrooms, surgeons in trauma units, soldiers fighting unseen enemies. Purpose says giving up is not an option because you are on a mission. Mission is your must do your have to. Mission keeps you focused on what must be done. Mission makes your heart beat faster and taps into something deep within and says you are the one. 
to do this. Purpose and mission cannot be separated. They are interwoven like the colors of your eyes. And when you feel your purpose and know your mission, you become unstoppable. But what happens when people with purpose on a mission join together? History. Think about it. 12 men on a mountain with Jesus as he reminded them of their purpose and sent them out on what we now know as the Great Commission. His mission. The mission. Go. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The rest? History. Those few men went on to ensure the gospel made its way around the globe through circumstances we cannot imagine, at great personal cost, even their very lives, because they knew their purpose and never backed away from their mission. But that mission, that purpose, did not end with them. They were just the beginning. You see, every church, every believer carries that same mission today. It's us who are to go and make disciples. But we can only do that by following one person, Jesus. There are no substitutes, no alternatives, and no exceptions. Following Jesus is the only way. Making disciples means you help someone else follow Jesus too. And as it was with the first disciples, so it is with us. And that is our mission. To become a community of people who follow Jesus with our whole heart and help others do the same. That mission keeps us climbing innovating, and never backing down. It is what we must do. It is our have to. We, the church, carry the responsibility to be a community that stands out. A community that shakes the very gates of hell with such intentional pursuit of Jesus over everything that people take notice. People often wonder, why am I here? Jesus gave us the answer to that question. We are here to follow him and make disciples. We know our purpose. We have our mission. Our world is in desperate need of people with purpose on a mission. Unbelievers here and around the world need to encounter Christ followers who will take responsibility to help them find and follow Jesus, the only one worth following to the only life worth living. If not us, then who?
If not now, then when? be funny if I came up here wearing that black shirt. <laughs> Purpose is our mission. What, what I love about that video are the images that, that evoke this idea of, I'm here for a reason. You're here for a reason. And guys, I, I don't know about you. You know, I, sometimes I think like, oh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I have to be a professional Christian. You know, I'm, I'm paid to be good. And part of my job, I'm just like you. I'm just like you. I want to learn what it means to follow Jesus with my whole heart. I want my life to matter. And, and not in a, an egotistical way, but because I actually believe Jesus rescued me. He rescued me for purpose. And, and, and if you sense that with me, what we're trying to do through the, the, the articulation of the mission, even through this video, is to say, let's go. Let's be in on this together. Lloyd said something in that video that, that I want to restate. He said, every church, every believer carries the same mission today. It's us who are to go and make disciples. And I don't, I don't know who you think of when you hear those words. Maybe you think of, you know, missionaries or evangelists, that kind of thing. But that's why we wanted to end the video with those two questions. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? There's something about the moment we're living in that we all sort of sense. It's like, man, this is getting weird. It's getting strange to know what it means to be a Christian in 2023 in our time and place. And here's what I've been thinking about. And I'll close with this. I, there's a whole generation of people below us, underneath us, who need someone to follow Jesus with their whole heart and then teach them to do the same. That's our task. This is our time. And so I want to pray for us. And then after I pray, we're going to sing a song together. And that's how we're going to close our morning out. So bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, thank you for calling us to something. Thank you for not being content for us just to live boring lives. And I thank you for this beautiful text you've given us that we're studying right now in this season as a church in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus as the light of the world, the, the life, the living water, the bread. It's all these things, these images, these metaphors. And we need these things to help us find ourselves in the story and find our purpose in the story. And Father, I do pray we would, we would live out Act 5 of your Gospel message. That we would be faithful with the message that's been entrusted to us in our time and in our place to the people you lead into our path. And that's my prayer for our church. And we collectively ask you, would you do far more than we can see or imagine? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and sing.